Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how Abraham built an altar each time God gave him special promises. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now, here's some highlights from yesterday's message. So, Elohim refers to the Trinity. At first, it refers to the three persons of the Godhead or the Trinity. So the Shema is affirming that Jehovah Jesus is a person in the three persons of the Elohim Godhead and that all these three persons are perfectly in sync. So in a person, there's an echadness. There's an echadness between the spirit, the soul, and the body. Now here's Tom Cantor as we continue our expository study from the book of Genesis every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And they're all working at the same time. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts, why? To give the light of the knowledge of God, in the, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, what you see. So if we want to know who God the Father is, or what he's like, we look in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to know what the Holy Spirit is like, God the Holy Spirit, we look in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because in Hebrews 1.3, he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. So we know that when, Je- when Genesis 12.7 is speaking and it says Jehovah appeared unto Abraham, that was Jehovah Jesus who appeared to Abraham. Now, Abraham was so amazed that God appeared to him. And what, is he, what did he do to memorialize that? He built an altar, right? He built an altar. And so we see how verse 7 puts it. It says, there, there, builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. So we see that Abraham built an altar to the Lord because the Lord appeared to him. And we see in verse 7 that very important word, there, which emphasizes how Abraham wanted so much to mark the place where God appeared to him. Abraham wanted to never forget how God appeared to him there, that he wanted that there should be a memorial. So there he builds an altar to the Lord. And that's why the word there is so important in verse 7, because it shows the place where God appeared to him. And that's the place where he built the altar, the exact place. So now we look in verse 8, and we see again the word there, because Abraham's marking another place, now it's up in the mountain, and Abraham has a new altar, and so again, we see him marking the very important place, and again, it's all about the there, and he builds this new altar there, because right there, something very important happened to him. What happened there? He called on the name of the Lord. So the first altar was where something was done to Abraham. God appeared to Abraham. The second altar was where Abraham did something. He called on the name of the Lord. See, God revealed himself to Abraham, and God gave the promise of the land to Abraham, and then he built the first altar. See, God did something. He appeared to Abraham, and so Abraham built that first altar. God did that to Abraham. Then Abraham responds... And he calls on the name of the Lord, and then he builds an altar there. So Abraham did something. See, he called on the name of the Lord. And where that happened, 
Abraham memorializes and says, we're going to build an altar here. We're going to build an altar here. God appeared to me. We're going to build an altar here. Then I called on the name of the Lord. So the key to understanding the relationship between these two verses, seven and eight, these two altars, the first and second altar, is the word there because it shows that there God appeared to him. There Abraham called on the name of the Lord. The second there is where Abraham did something. In other words, this is a picture of of how it's supposed to happen. This is Abraham responding. First came the revelation. That was the first altar. Second comes what Abraham does. He's responding. He's calling on the name of the Lord. He's becoming a man of prayer. But Abraham is. Why? As a result of God appearing to him. So we have the first one. So what do you call this? You call this Abraham received in the first altar. Abraham engaged at the second altar. Abraham engaged. God appeared to Abraham and then Abraham responded, or let's say God appeared to Abraham, and God then waited for Abraham to respond. He waited for Abraham to engage, and then Abraham did engage. And it's as if God says, you know, you and I, when, when he did engage in the second altar, then God could have said, you know, you and I, Abraham, are going to have a great relationship because you engage. You respond, Abraham. Now, Look with me at the calling of Moses, the great calling of Moses to deliver the Jewish people from Egypt. Please turn to Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush passage where God appeared to Moses. Exodus 3, 6 through 11. So this is the great passage here, the start of the whole thing with, with Moses that resulted in the deliverance of the Jewish people. This is really the calling of the great Moses, our teacher, our rabbi, Moshe Rabbeinu, our rabbi. So here we go. So it says here in Exodus 3, 6, and I'll study it. Moreover, he said, as God speaking out of the burning bush, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So who appeared to him in the burning bush? God did. Okay. And the Lord, Jehovah, see, interchangeable, said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up into a land, unto a land, good land, a large land, and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Abraham, that thou mayest bring forth my people, children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? This is a very similar experience that Moses had compared to Abraham. Why? Because just as in Genesis 12, 7, the first time when God has appeared to Abraham, we have that in Exodus 3, 6, what we're looking at now. This is the first time that God appears to Moses. And we see that, you know, he hid his face because he was afraid to look upon God in verse 6. And then in verse 6, God introduces himself. He says, I, I want to tell you who I am. He says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And in verse 7, God moves directly into the issue the issue with the Jewish people. They must be delivered. It's as if God says, yeah, I want to introduce myself. And as soon as he's done that, in verse 7, he comes right, right abruptly 
God's saying, you know, well, now the introduction's out of the way. Let's get to the point, you know. And so, and so then verses 7, 8, and 9, God gets right down to the point, right down to the issue. What's the issue? God's talking about, in verse 7, three points. And they are what he has, they're all about what he has seen, what he has heard, and what he knows. Those are the three points. And God's talking about his eyes and his ears and his soul. And he says, he said, I, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry, and I know their sorrow. So if Moses had any ideas, I said, oh, it's God who's introduced himself to me. You know, let's talk about something else. Only. He says, you know, oh, God, you're God. Wow, that's something. I have a lot of questions I like to ask you. Can I ask you some questions about creation? I always wondered how the universe works. Well, Moses could just forget it because God was stirred up and God was focused, and God wanted Moses to be stirred up and to get focused, and he didn't want to talk about anything else other than what he had seen and what he had heard and what he knows. He said, I've seen the affliction of my people, and he didn't want to talk about anything other than what he had heard. He says, I've heard their cry, and he didn't want to talk about anything else that he knew other than what he knew in his soul. I know their sorrow. So verse 7 is information for God. It's information about what he, what he saw, the affliction, what he heard, their cry, and what he knew, their sorrow. Now, what does God do with all that information? That's why verse 8 comes. He moves to action. See, he says, you got all this information, and so what are you going to do about it, God? I am come down to deliver them. I am come down to bring them out of Egypt. I am come down to bring them up into a land flowing with milk and honey. So God was showing Moses. He's saying, Moses, you know, in essence, he's like he's saying to Moses, Moses, watch me. Okay, watch me. <laughs> he's saying, watch me. Look at what happens. I get information and then I act, right? I, I, I get information and then I act. I saw, I heard, I know, I come. See? Now, so he's saying, in essence, in essence to Moses, Watch me carefully so that you can do what the Lord Jesus Christ said on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, said, that ye may be the children of your father. So in essence, he's saying that to Moses, that you may be the children of me, a child of me. So watch me carefully. He's saying to Moses, he says, Moses, you need to hear. You need to hear and absorb the throb of God's heart or God's heart throb so that you can engage. Because that's what I did. So when God told Moses that he had, what he had seen, what he had heard, what he knew, and how that motivated God to then move. God was saying to Moses, you see how that information engages me to action? And so God is saying to Moses, that's what I expect of you, Moses. I want you to do that. And I'm going to show you this information also so that you can engage to action. So verse 9, God gives it a try with, by saying, now therefore, he repeats, he says, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me. I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. And now Moses at this point could have said, you know, he could have stepped back and he said, so, <laughs> okay, Moses could have said, so why are you telling me all this information, right? But God answered the question in verse 10. And he says, I'll tell you why I'm telling you this. Because come now therefore, and I'll send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So, Moses could have said, me? (laughs) You want to send me to bring your people out of Egypt? As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Moses did say, you know, to God 
And why did Moses resist God's call to him? Because at first, you got it right later, but at first, Moses did not engage. Moses did not engage. You know, both my 2006 Element and the 89 Mercedes, they had the same problem, you know. I'd step on the gas and you know, move my head forward, nothing happened, you know. <laughs> Made a noise, didn't engage, problem with transmission. And, and you know the feeling. You, you step on the gas and you anticipate the car to go forward and you kind of move your head like that and, and nothing happens. And so the tachometer goes up, you know, but the speedometer stays down, you know. And why? Because the transmission is not engaging, so the tires aren't moving, you know. That's what's happening here. In verses 7 through 9, God's the engine. And those verses are like the tachometer starting to go up, you know. And so then the engine's revved up, and, and as God says, I've seen, I've heard, I know, that's the tachometer going up. And in verse 10, when God says, come now therefore, and I'll send thee, that's God, he's taking his big hand, he's putting it on the gear shifter, you know. He's putting it on the gear shift level there, and he's trying to shift Moses into drive. And so God puts his head forward like you know, we're going to move, and Moses doesn't move. He doesn't, the transmission doesn't engage. <laughs> Moses' feet, like the tires, they're not moving. You know, and he should have said, I'm on my way, I'm on my way. You know, but he didn't do that. But instead, nothing happens. So Moses doesn't engage. And he replies in this next verse with, who am I? You know, that's like, no, he says, you got the wrong man. That's what the paraphrase of what Moses is saying. Why? No engagement. Transmission, no engagement. Tachometer revs, speedometer doesn't move. And God's saying, why do you think I told you all this? It was because I wanted you to, to engage like a transmission with the engine. I'm the engine. You're not engaging. Now, we love the Bible here. Oh, we love the Bible. And we love the truth from the Bible. And we like to learn because the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us. But why does God reveal this truth to us? Because he wants us, like Moses, to engage. He wants us our transmissions to engage. So he teaches us truth so that he can put his hand on the gear shifter of our lives and move it into drive and take us where he wants us to go because he wants us to engage. And that's why he does. Why does he teach us about heaven and hell? Why? Because he wants us, like he says here, see how sin has imprisoned, has deceived, is killing the lost and engage by bringing the lost the gospel. So they can be set free. Why does he teach us all these things? Because he wants us to hear the cries of the lost. The cries of the lost. What do they want? They want safety, security. They have a good forever. So he's saying to us, engage by bringing to the lost the promises of salvation so that make them safe in the arms of Jesus. And he tells us all this in the Bible so that we will know the sorrows of the lost, so that we can engage by bringing to the lost the comfort of being redeemed by the all-powerful blood of the Lord Jesus. So just like Moses, God teaches us so that we will engage. Uh, you know, last week, Russ, he, he went to go visit a 94-year-old Jewish man named Julius, just had open-heart surgery, and God miraculously kept this 94-year-old man. He, it's a miracle that anybody lives through open-heart surgery, but especially if you're 94. And so he, bring, he brings him the gospel. Now, why did Russ go to Julius? Because Russ was willing to see the oppressive weight on Julius from being trapped in a Jewish religion of dead works with no hope of heaven 
And so, therefore, Russ engaged, and he went to Julius. And why did, why did Russ go to Julius? Because Russ was willing to hear the silent cries for help of Julius. Silent cries for help to have God as his friend, to have a, a, a forever good future. And so Russ engaged, and then he went to Julius. And why did Russ go to Julius? Because Russ was willing to know Julius's sorrow, the sorrow in his heart as he faced a grave and an eternity in hell. You know, the Bible uses whenever it says in the Old Testament, it talks about the power of the grave, you know. That's not the word power, it's the hand of the grave. It's the way how it's used. Because he knew the sorrow as this man could see the hand of the grave reaching out for him to drag him in to an eternity of hell of suffering and without the Lord Jesus Christ. And Russ engaged with that knowledge, that sorrow, and he went to Julius. He went to Julius, patiently explains to him that he could be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Russ asked Julius the question, if he wanted to receive the Lord, and Julius said, yes. Why? Because Russ was willing to let God show him the oppression. Let God have him hear the cries. Let God make him know the sorrows of Julius. And so he went. So that's what happened. Because Russ saw what God saw. What does God see? God looks at a person like Julius and sees Julius in his lostness. And Russ heard what God heard. What God hears the cries of a man like Julius, knows the sorrows of a man like Julius. And so he gauges, he goes to Julius, Julius is saved. Now, the more we learn, the more we, the more we learn, the more we want God to help us, to help us to hear so that we can engage and go. Faith of the head is dead. Faith of the heart is better in part. But faith of the hand, that will stand. So we see this so clearly in Paul's life. When Paul first encountered the Lord Jesus, Jehovah Jesus, he was on this road to Damascus, you remember. And it says in Acts 9, 5 through 6, that when he had this encounter, he said, Paul said, and he said, Who, that's a very important word, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what? That's an important word. What wilt thou have me to do? Dad, today you talked about how when Moses first saw God in Exodus 3.6, how it says that Moses hid his face and was afraid to look upon God. When I think of Moses as the great deliverer of God's law to man and the great friend of God, it's really hard to think of him as also hiding his face from God. How does the fact that Moses hid his face from God apply to our lives? Well, David, I'm glad you asked that question because it's very interesting to see Moses here in the, in, as the person who hid his face from God and was afraid to look upon God, as it says in Exodus 3.6. Because really, it's the first step of a great transformation that Moses went through. That was step one, where Moses hid his face from God and was afraid to look upon God, Exodus 3.6. But there is step two where we see Moses in Exodus 33.11, where it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. So we see step one of Moses hiding his face and afraid to look on God in Exodus 3.6. Then we see a totally different relationship with God in Exodus 33.11, where it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. 
And how this applies to our lives is how did Moses and how do we go from step one to step two? How does this transformation take place of being a person who hides his face from God, who is afraid to look upon God, to being a person who is a friend of God and speaks to him face to face? And the step one, step two transformation in Moses' life is the step one, step two transformation that God wants for everybody's life. And the way it occurs is given to us in Isaiah 45, 22, where God says, and he said to every person on the earth, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. This is an invitation that God is making to every person on the earth, or all the ends of the earth God is addressing. And he's saying, all the ends of the the earth, look unto me and be ye saved, for I am God and there is none else. So the first step that a person must take in order to have this great transformation is to open himself to God. Today I talked to a a very dear Jewish man, uh, 90 years old, and he says to me, he's an agnostic. And I said to him, you're not agnostic, that means that you're closed. He said, no. He says, I'm an agnostic, means that I don't know, but I'm open. I said, well, wait a minute. There are two types of agnostic person. There is the one type of agnostic person who says, I don't know, and I don't want to know. That's a closed person. That's a person who says, I don't know about God, I don't know God, and I don't want to know about God, and I don't want to know God. That's an closed agnostic person. But there's another type of agnostic person. That's the agnostic person who says, I don't know, and I want to know. I don't know about God, and I want to know about God. I don't know God, and I want to know God. That's an open person. And to that person, God says in Jeremiah 20, 13, And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. So that's not passive complacency. That's an agnostic who is an honest agnostic who says, I don't know, but I really want to know. As a matter of fact, I don't know, and I need to know. As a matter of fact, I don't know, and I must know. And when God hears that last part from the agnostic, I must know, God says, all right, now we can do business together because now you apply for Jeremiah 29, 13, that you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. And the business that God wants to do with that person, with every person, is expressed to us in Isaiah 118, where God says, come now. And let's reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, God says, I know that, they shall be as white as snow. That's what I'm offering. Though they be red like crimson, I know that, God says they shall be as will as wool. And what determines whether or not that's going to happen for any individual? Verse 19 of Isaiah 1. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But... Verse 20, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, God's saying, it's your choice. It's 100% your choice. If you're willing, if you're obedient, heaven has been opened to you. But if you're not willing, you refuse, you rebel, 
You get behind the veil of saying, I'm an agnostic and I don't want to know. He says, you'll be devoured and that'll be an eternal devourment in a state of death called the eternal death called hell. And he says, the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You can't change it. But he says, look unto me. And the question is, where are you, God? Romans 5, 8, God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Romans 10, 9, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt be saved in thine heart, sorry, and shalt believe in thine heart that God erased him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So what is it? Where do we see? Where are you when it says, look unto me, all ye ends of the earth? God said that. Look unto me. And you say, well, where are you? Are you in literature? Are you are you in philosophy? Are you in religion? And God has the resounding, no, look unto me. And man says in his lost state, where are you? And God says, look unto me on the cross. I'm on the cross. I'm dying for your sins. And if you confess that the that Jesus who died for your sins is God, then you will be saved. And that's the mouth of the Lord that's promised it. Thank you for joining us today. Remember, today's message is available for free listening and free download at friendshipwithgod.org. We've also gone into additional printing on Tom Cantor's latest book offering called Whosoever Will Versus Fatalism, which helps you to understand what is Calvinistic fatalism and did God predestinate people to die and to go to hell? And he also shows that we're all faced with the personal crisis of obedience. And the most eye-opening part of this book is that Tom Cantor himself was once a fatalistic Calvinist. Now, if you'd like a copy of this brand new book, you can call us today at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. Or go to our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org.